0: If we become this big fat cat processor who's just rolling in, you know, profits and kind of doing it at the at the uh, expense of farmers and, and even potential customers, it's not going to set the right tone for for getting this industry up off the ground. There, there's there's enough to be had for everybody in this thing. I mean, there's more than enough. It's a, it's what we call a blue ocean thing, right? So, um, what we're What we're gonna look at doing, I think the easiest way for us to to give back to the farmer is to pay well, (laughs) pay well for what they provide us.
1: Hey guys, it's Mandy with the Global Hemp Association. I wanted to say thank you very, very much for joining. I'm really excited to have you, to have an opportunity to meet so many people. Again, if you like our content and like what we're producing, please like, share, comment, subscribe. You'll meet so many amazing people with all of the interviews that we've done. They're available on our YouTube channel and on Patreon. I would love to start with an intro from you guys. Tell me a little bit about who you are. I'm really excited to have you guys both on. I'm excited to have both of you. It's been fun talking to each of you, but really, um, you guys know this industry and what's going on, and so please don't hesitate to jump in at any time and you know, give us feedback. Yeah. But yeah, Brian, if you want to start, I'd love to hear your background. Tell me a little bit about, about Eli, how you got here, and um, yeah, what really drives this fuel to start a company like this?
2: Okay. Uh, my name is Brian Wilson. Uh, I'm president and co-founder of, uh, of Environmental Living Industries, uh, Eli, E-L-I. And um, we got into this of, from a very uh, long story that probably started uh, along about eight years ago. Um, about eight years ago, uh, I was married to my wife uh, and uh, she uh, started getting really sick. So, um, and, and we had no idea what was causing it. And we were going to doctor after doctor after doctor trying to figure out what the problem was. And she was getting a whole lot of diagnoses of different things, but never a root cause of what was causing all these diagnoses. Um, she was working as a pediatric emergency nurse at the time. And uh, she ended up being diagnosed with things like Hashimoto's disease, endometriosis, interstitial cystitis. And she was, uh, she was developing food allergies uh, more and more as she went along. Like one day she just, it came randomly one day, like she wouldn't be able to tolerate anything with soy in it. And then after that, she wouldn't be able to tolerate anything with, with, uh, with any kind of wheat product in it. Or, and then dairy after that, and it just kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Um, along the way, uh, trying to find solutions. Uh, she became pregnant and um, uh, he, that pregnancy seemed to be going well up until it didn't. Um, at nine months, she started going into uh, uh, labor and she gave birth to my stillborn son, Eli, which is where we get our name. Um, it was then uh, that we've actually found out what the was uh, after going to probably our beyond our 30th position um, we ended up uh, getting a diagnosis from her after she got tested for a mold uh, illness. So there were a myriad of different mold infections that she was having but uh, uh, ochratoxin and gliotoxin were uh, among the top two uh, with a smattering of others in there. Um, this uh, mold illness is something that does affect um, um, pregnant mothers quite a bit. Um, it crosses the placental barrier uh, and uh, it uh, disrupts mitochondrial function, uh, which is, I mean, she was actually uh, one of the symptoms that she was getting progressively worse is she was having just a really horrible fatigue all the time. Um, it got to the point where. Uh, she was not able to function anymore as a pediatric emergency nurse. And she had to come home. Uh, she just had to, she had to stop work because uh, she had, she was the point where she was sleeping 14, 15, you know 16 hours a day. Um, uh, and uh, one of the other things that some of the mold does when it crosses the placental barrier is it inter- it interferes with you know, protein synthesis and several other things and, and it was, what we believe had caused uh, Eli's death because we had no answers for that as well. Autopsy, genetic study, nothing of that could pick up you know what went wrong. Um, shortly after, um, I was uh, contracting overseas at the time. this is actually where I met my CEO, Kyle. He was actually my supervisor at the time. <laughs> um, and, uh, and he was actually there. I was on his team when it happened. And uh, so, so he knows about everything that we were that we were going through when that happened, and how hard that hit us. Um, uh, shortly after that, uh, I decided to come home, and during that time, uh, we were working on healing my wife uh, as best as we could with the with the mold doctor that we had found up in Atlanta. And uh, I decided that me switching gears out of that you know security contracting life. Um, you know what we were going to do is I was going to look for an entrepreneurial endeavor that would double as supplying that need that we had for my wife and one of the biggest things that was going on at the time was you know food food was the best medicine for her a very extremely clean diet while she was going through the various treatments that the old doctor was putting her through um, so we were doing uh, I was starting up a uh, getting into aquaponics and small scale, you know, high yield growing systems and, you know, uh, you know, farm table marketing, growing food and all that. Um, And uh, along the way of trying to find some of the other things that would help uh, her heal, we'd come across the fact that uh, the house that we were living in um, uh, was actually part of the problem The construction methods that uh, that are, predominantly used today was one of the main reasons why you know the house one had mold in it which was causing an autoimmune uh, kind of a collapse in her which is another effect of the uh, the uh, um, effects not the spores but the the toxins that give that mold gives off it's an autoimmune disruptor okay. um, and along with that the with the uh, common practices of construction there's the materials in the house that are Gassing certain materials, they typically don't bother most people. Uh, but whenever you make somebody immunocompromised, then it does. So if somebody just doesn't have good nutrition or if somebody doesn't have has any kind of ailment that's affecting them, um, you know, you start seeing stories where people are like, Hey, I realized my dream and we built our house and then uh, we, somebody got lupus, you know, <laughs> or, or or some so they start getting oddly sick for some other reason. This is something that once we once we started paying attention to it, we started seeing it a lot more like, hey, you know, you just bought a, you know, a Ford Explorer and then you start seeing all the other Ford Explorers out on the road, you know. Um, so uh, I came across a, an individual named Thomas Hoffman. He's now co-founder, uh, vice president with me in the company. And he was talking about getting into hemp processing. Uh, and so I, uh, he was going, wanted to get into CBD. So I was like, Hey, this is a pretty cool idea. Let me look at it. Um, and then I started seeing all of the different uses and, and all the different areas that hemp could help in. And it really seemed like CBD was like a really narrow path. You know, there, there seemed to be just kind of like, you know, a, a certain limitation to what you know, CBD could do. And I started looking at all the other areas, well, what can fiber do? What can grain do? Um, and I liked that a whole lot more. I looked at that and I looked at the benefits of it, uh, and all the things that it could create and all the, the, the massive opportunities that were there. It's like, why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we doing this? So, um, I started researching more into it just in happenstance. I came across Jeremy Luciano over at GHS industries, uh, on a random Facebook post, somebody was talking about CBD and Jeremy was talking about being somebody who sets up processors. So I was like, hey, let me just send a random message out to this guy. So at the time I was working a paramedic as a paramedic, and there me and Thomas were at the EMS station just praying a call, didn't come in. And we ended up having a, you know, half an hour and a half, two hour conversation with Jeremy over the phone and just it just it, it ignited. It igni- that the whole thing is just ignited from there. That was January of last year.
1: Can I, I asked, that- what about the conversation really said okay, this is where I'm going. I, this is it. What, what turned you to say, this is where
2: I'm in? Um, when we started talking about the scale. Okay. Uh, we started out looking at the Canadian Greenfields hemp train. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I was gearing more from away from CBD and looking into fiber and one ton per hour system. Hey, that's great. Uh, and just like I said, that happenstance. We started talking to Jeremy, and Jeremy said he had a line on a uh, exclusivity agreement with a company in Europe that was doing, you know, eight to ten tons per hour. And we're like, "All right, this thing is a behemoth. This mm-hmm. thing is an absolute monster." He sent me the capabilities on it. He so sent me a couple photos of it. And instead of it being just this standalone system that fit inside, you know, that fit inside a room, you know, a decent sized room this was a massive industrial uh industrial operation with you know the components integrated into the building itself i mean this is whenever you think you know industrial size anything like, like this is you know where people smelt steel this is where you know this is uh th- th- this is where a massive operation
1: yeah real industrial yeah. this is yeah, a- it
2: this- the the machinery is hardcore. You look at it and you're like, this thing, this machinery could, looks like it could take a bomb. Looks like you can hide inside of it. <laughs> Only so, you two would say that. Only <laughs> <you two laughs> to yeah. hide inside of a bomb. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, that's that's the military background. I did, yeah, I didn't say that. Uh, uh, both uh, me and Kyle are both military background. I was special operations infantryman with the 75th Ranger Regiment. Um, that's how we. Had, that's when I got into security contracting. After that, and, uh, in between there, I worked as a paramedic and a firefighter for a little bit. So, no business experience whatsoever. But it's whatever I'm doing seems to be working so far. So we're just going to keep trying. But, um,
1: thank you both for your service. I'll throw that in real quick. <laughs> thank, thank, you. You. <laughs>
2: thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so that's that's just where the conversation ended up coming from. Jeremy, he told us about his machine. We were on fire with it and. Uh, we, we do as much work as we possibly can into an area until we hit a wall where we don't know as much information as we should. And then I go hire somebody who knows more than me to, to take the baton and keep going with it. And it seems to keep working. So, um, as I was doing this, I came across, uh, um, I had a good breakdown of what was going I had a five-year performa, uh, um, um. um kind of a, a small business plan and started looking at you know ways to raise money for it and uh at, at the time you know uh, kyle uh I, ha- I had not talked to him about it yet that um, uh, we had split you know a couple of years ago when when we were both working in israel and kind of parted ways and he went to uh, cornell to get his uh nba and uh i knew that that's what he was doing and you know, I, I hadn't heard from him since. I didn't know where he was. Um, I didn't know what he was doing. All I knew is he was. Pro- he was. He probably made it. <laughs> so I, I got his. Uh, yeah, I uh, contacted him. I believe it was on Facebook, and just sent him a message like, "Hey, man, here's what I got going on. Tell me what you think." And he started getting real excited about it, and uh, asked him if he was interested in joining me, and he was. Yeah, and so you know, uh, he's. Doing, doing the, a lot of the business side and, and all the, the know-how that he has with the, the drive that he has and the education that he has uh, and just his ability to just be so intricate on the operations. Uh, I'm, I'm a kind of a big-picture guy. He's, he, he knows how to make all that big-picture stuff work. I'm absolutely blessed to have him. You know? And uh, I guess with that, it'll be a good transition. Pass the ball over to Kyle. But let you go with that, man. <laughs> that up perfect Kyle I'm
1: curious what was your aha moment what made you say okay hemp is really a solution for you
0: um so I, I admittedly first got into it um because Brian I considered a friend and um you know he he obviously was telling me about what he was doing and I was able to connect the dots real quickly uh you know, through conversations with them on the experiences that he had the tragedy that he went through and now what he's trying to do Mm -hmm. um so so yeah at at first that was kind of my motivation was like okay you know i really like brian he's a good friend of mine this is a very interesting project he's working on let me get involved and and see where i can help and obviously part of that is i got to learn about hemp and industrial hemp i knew nothing uh so i started going down that road brian was giving me a lot of material. Um, kind of pointing me in the right directions, and I'm telling you, everywhere I looked, it was like, "Oh wow, you know, <laughs> it does this, it does that." I, I mean, I have not seen an industry that that uh, you know this thing can't improve, can't make better. Um, I, in fact, uh, there's there's a couple interesting aspects of the of the name Eli. Obviously, the reference to the sun, which I have a love-hate relationship with that story. It's a tragedy. I hate that Candace and, and Brian had to go through that. Um, but I love how they're turning that into to a positive. And I love
1: that this is not a get-rich story. Yeah. This is finding a solution. And yeah. it, I mean, more and more, our consumers want a story. They want yeah. to know. And unfortunately, you nailed it.
0: Yeah. No, I totally agree. Yeah. Um, but... but you know, the, the the name Eli, obviously abbreviated, re- refers to that, uh, which, is, which is incredible. It's kind of always reminding us what our mission is and why we're doing what we're doing. But the long version, environmental living industries, I think in company, uh, embodies like the three benefits that hemp has, right? It's environmental, and we could go on for hours about all the environmental uh, benefits. Um, I look at living as, you know, a healthier living. If you, you know, you can build homes out of this stuff and, and you're gonna be healthier. Um, and industries kind of, for me, uh, harkens to the economical benefits that we can bring all these different industries. So, so, um, those are the kind of the crossroads that I'm looking at as I'm looking at this sort of thing and, and and doing my research and discovering all, all the benefits that IMS has, has, uh, for everybody. Yeah, I, I, it wasn't long. And I think, uh, that journey that I'm, that I've taken recently in the last year, um, is the pretty much the same journey that, Everybody goes through, as soon as they get turned on to this, they're like, okay, let me check this out. And then you dig a little and you find some more and you find some more and you find some more and you go, this is crazy. This is so good. Why aren't, why aren't we doing this yet? Uh, and I think we're in the right place at the right time, right? The, the, the regulations have come along um, and created an environment that's more more favorable and open to this sort of thing. Obviously, industries are ready for it. We see, we see farmers who are anxiously waiting for, uh, the opportunity to grow. Um, obviously for a long time now, there have been, um, uh, business consumers who want the products so that they can make better products themselves. And what, what I see is missing and where Brian and, and I think are in the right exact spot is that middle component in that supply chain is the processors. Um, you have, a, you have a choke point right there in that supply chain. And I'm sure we'll talk more about scale, but that's kind of the strategy behind our scale too. You know, to, to stabilize that supply chain and have consistent quality across the supply chain, you're gonna need larger scale producers, uh, processors in there. Yeah.
1: absolutely. So when we talk about large scale and small scale, we kind of talked about this offline, right? Um, I got into this because I saw it as an opportunity to provide rural areas, especially those that are heavily uh, oil and gas, you know, funded by the oil and gas industry, an alternative solution. But those smaller communities will never compete on large scale commodity price, right? And so yeah. there really is a lot of discussion around the small scale and big scale. And on that same side, there's no way that these big industries are going to come in to provide opportunity for our farmers to grow by providing large contracts without this big scale. So <laughs> tell me a little bit about how you see you know, future complications or roadblocks, uh, speed bumps, I guess, that you're gonna mm-hmm. come, come up on and what are the benefits to the large scale compared to this small scale?
0: Yeah, for me, it's a, it's a basic risk reward paradigm, right? Um, you, you know, Large scales, obviously, by nature, gonna require higher capital. Um, you're probably going to need a longer runway to get operations up and running and and get the um, supply chain stabilized. Um, And there's going to be a lot of learning pain points and learning because it's just not done today, right? We don't have uh, a perfect model unless you want to look at Europe or, or Canada or something else along those lines, which of course we'll do. But here in the United States particularly, you don't have a model that you can go follow. So you're kind of, we use the analogy a lot that uh, we're, we're building the air, airplane you know in air and, and while, we it's hope to have, while it's flying we hope to have it built before we hit the ground uh, <laughs> I mean that's it's a perfect analogy
1: I well, say that all the time <laughs> yeah. so like, slow down we can't we're in the air like
0: we <laughs> <can't>. <laughs> oh and by the way we don't even have a blueprint for it for yeah. an airplane. <laughs> or the tools, it's cool. or the tools. I got, I'm pulling duct tape out right and we're <laughs> problems on the fly uh, so obviously that's a lot of risk um to, to be done, but it's a huge reward if if uh we're the ones that figure it out and we hope to be. Um, you know, and again, going back to what we said, we're you know, there's a monetary reward, of course. We're we're in business to to make money and all these sorts of things. But uh we're also true believers in in the power of of hemp and what it can do to multiple industries, what it can do to make people healthier, what it can do for the environment and and all these sorts of things. So um we 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 are we are you know all in on this thing. We're going big. Um, we're we're gonna try to avoid the field of dreams strategy of the if you build it they will come because we want to make sure that we're not being foolish about it. Uh, but I mean if we get the right team around us, we get the right money to back us. It's a no brainer to me. I, I know we're gonna pull it off. Um, it's gonna hurt. We're gonna be bruised and battered. Uh, at the end of it, but but we'll lick our wounds. We'll continue on, and and, uh, and we'll all rejoice in the fact that we got something going.
1: I'm excited, yeah. and I'm with you. The more that I dove into it, it wasn't a matter of you know we should use it. It was like why wouldn't you? Yeah. It's, I I went from talking about the benefits to why wouldn't you? Like what what would stop you from from diving in? Um, yeah. Okay, so. Once we get processing in place, right, for the last year, we've been talking about the need within the industry for the processing infrastructure so that then our farmers have someone to sell to. I was on a pretty rough call yesterday to find out corn is crushing the price of hemp. How are we going to combat and what do we do as war has changed, you know, um, when they can come in and now say, hey, you don't want to grow corn? You're going to go to hemp? Well, I'll pay you twice as much for corn as you do hemp. So what do we do really, you know, as this changes from now we're going to have processing facilities that can produce good volume to our farmers being able to grow it? You know, what what does that conversation look like to them and how do we secure our farmers?
2: Yeah, well, I think on something like that, it's not just so much the initial price of what corn is right now. I mean, honestly, look at what the corn price was two years ago. Now, what is the corn price to be two years from now? like all of that completely changes the metric and so much more changes the metric beyond that is, uh, and what is the overall other benefits that that hemp does provide? So one of the things that we're trying to figure out in the United States right now and across the entire world is a, a way to fix the carbon problem. So if the price alone for hemp is down, then you have to think outside the box for ways to make up that prices and other ends. So with every one ton of hemp fiber that's planted, it sequesters 1.4 tons of carbon out of either into the plant itself or back down into the soil. So that alone right there is a gigantic problem that can be solved. I mean, if we're talking you know, right now thousands and then soon millions and millions of acres of this stuff, that is millions and millions of tons of carbon dioxide pulled out of the atmosphere, which is a problem that needs needs to be fixed. So the, be that the price of hemp is down. Well, with that, we have an opportunity of creating an additional revenue stream to the farmer. So it's, so at that particular time, another commodity's price may be above hemp, but hemp also has the ability to provide the revenue stream of perhaps carbon credits. So a farmer is receiving carbon credits for all of that tonnage of carbon dioxide that they're pulling out of the atmosphere, which would put it over the top. And there's an additional step after that that we also need to consider. And this is anecdotal at the time, but if it pans out to be true, this could be an absolute game changer. Whereas with the soil remediation that hemp fiber does to the soil to farmers, there is an increased boost to the crop that's grown after it. That would create a monetary jump in that crop that would dwarf anything that they would have if they just sold corn. So yes, in the immediate future, you would make more money right now if you you grew corn over him. But let's say you made 10% more. Now, if I give you a 10, 20, 30% boost, which is anecdotally what's been shown to happen when, whenever a crop is planted after hemp fiber, and in this case, I'm, in Texas, I'm talking about cotton. That's a $2.2 billion industry, cotton in Texas. And if I'm saying that if I take your rotational crop, not even your main crop, just your rotational crop, and I put fiber in the ground, and I increase your cotton crop by 10, 20, 30% at no additional inputs. That's the other thing is you, at, with no additional water, with no additional soil additives, no additional anything, you're, all, you're getting a 10 plus percent boost in your crop. So that from what we see, that's a 10% boost to a $2.2 billion industry mm-hmm. at, at, with no additional overhead added.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And you're replacing... Another issue that we're having is in some areas, like we're talking about uh, setting up an operation in the Lubbock and Amarillo area is one of our options. They're having an issue with water consumption in the area. Their aquifer is being depleted with all the water consumption that's happening, and, and corn and, and all that is a very water hungry
0: uh,
2: uh, commodity. So. We come in, in addition to the possible carbon credits, in addition to the possible boost to your main crop, let me swap out your rotational corn with a crop that sips so much less water and allows your aquifer to be restored over time. Because I think we're talking about between 20 and 50 years, that aquifer being in serious danger of running dry. Now, we could actually come into there and plant a crop and then have... Water consumption across a widespread time lowered enough to where that aquifer can start to replenish, possibly. Mm-hmm. So, but the problem—the problems are not always the immediate cost of anything. You, well, you have to look at second and third degree. You have to look at the chessboard.
1: Don't quote me on on verbiage exactly, but wasn't it Thomas Jefferson who said the best thing we can do for America is add another crop into our rotation?
0: Yeah, that,
2: <clears throat> the
1: rotation that it's not the hemp always that's going to make the profit, but like you said, the 20 to 30% or 20 to 40%, I've heard upwards of 40% uh, because yeah. of the root structure and what it's capable of doing. Um, but in addition, you know, when we start removing acres, price is going to increase on on those rotation crops or other crops. So if we yeah. another, it's not removing the crop necessarily as much as it's adding that rotation. And so I say all the time, hemp is not where I'm seeing the greatest profit right now. It's in all of the sub sub that hemp is feeding into from carbon to water to, increased increased yields
0: yeah yeah we're not we're not going out to to the market and to farmers and saying look this is going to replace everything you do just come out and grow hemp and everything else in fact um you know as as a as kind of a budding industry and a new company we don't want to go head to head anyways against corn against cotton and all these other folks (laughs) yeah so so we are focusing a lot on these on these types of benefits that say look the the introduction of hemp into your toolbox as a farmer makes all your other potential uh, growth better. It really does. Uh, it you know cl- cleans out the soil. Um, it's an excellent rotation crop. Um, you can you can get a lot of you, you know you can get a high yield per acre and you can and you can harvest it more often than a lot of co- crops and all these sorts of things. So so yeah, I think we we've we've hit the nail on the head there that this isn't something that's going to come in and just replace everything and you're going to see. Every farmer, uh, you know, growing millions and millions of acres of hemp, at least not, not initially. Um, we, we just need a small piece to get this thing going. And uh, once we get that small piece, you know, the, we'll let the market figure it out, right? The market will decide where it's best applied. Uh, you know, is, is, is textiles going to get a boost from it? uh our building material is going to explode and and take off and and you know all of a sudden you start seeing hempcrete houses go up all over the place that's going to increase demand for for hemp products which is going to raise the price um you know for 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 the product from processors and ultimately farmers are going to feel that it's going to back all the way down that supply chain to farmers
1: okay you said so many things in that sentence You, you say stuff and I just start typing
2: questions. I want ask, but, you
1: know, we talk about volume and production and where it's going, um, you know, in markets. Where where are you guys focusing for in markets? And I bring this up because so much of that determines what our farmers are going to be growing. Right. What what are those SOPs? Um, so what what end market are you initially targeting or what is your. Yeah. What's your plan? What's the model there?
2: Well, we have additional uh, uh, at the outset, we have um, basically four targets that we, or phases, I guess, that we would want, want to hit. Uh, when we start pumping the, uh, the uh, material out, uh, obviously the markets that are going to be readily able to accept that material are the ones that are going to be able to take it with minimal processing. Uh, with that, you're, you know, say, herd material comes out, well, the markets that can just take that herd material or and just use it as is, or the ones that are going to have the first jump on it. So I mean, simple markets like animal bedding and and, uh, and, and building materials, yeah, that, that where you can just take it, mix it in a slurry with a couple of other with a couple of other ingredients, uh, and uh, and and that's that's super easy. Uh, once you start getting into you know phase you know two three four and all that then you start to see like hey you know we can take this you know long bass fiber and we can start putting it into degumming and cottonization, further processing it into a, a, a textile um, and, you know uh, initially you could probably take uh phase one phase two and put it towards unwovens you know things like that like you know grow mats and, and know simple things along that and that and that's perfectly fine and that's where the industry never that's where the industry needs to start. I'm under no compunctions thinking that we're automatically going to open this facility and then start funding Elon Musk's you know you know Tesla cars and batteries and battery technology and start putting out graphene and all that.
1: We're gonna put that out there. I'm giving a
2: (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> I, I
2: mean, if if uh, if Mr. Musk would like to give me a call and start buying material for us, obviously I'll take that call. You know, I'll, I'll pencil him into the schedule there somewhere. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but right now, start start modestly, start humbly. You know, uh, you know, if you're starting up an industry, sell to absolutely anyone who will take the material that you're producing. Let everyone get a taste for how great this material is. Put it out at the lowest possible cost that you can, so people can start getting out there and making mistakes with it, and innovating with it, and finding more, more um, um, of uses for it. Uh, because I mean, right now, I mean, we keep hearing it. It's got twenty-five thousand. It's got fifty thousand different uses and all that. It, but but no, I mean, any
1: anyway. Yeah,
2: it's let's let's go low ball and say it's twenty-five thousand different uses. But one of those uses is plastic. Extrapolate that out you know uh so now what number now what numbers are we talking you know and and when we're talking about problems going back to the earlier you know talking about costs is like okay well we're sort of solving a carbon dioxide problem we're also solving a problem with energy energy consumption about making these making these houses out of hempcrete where you're using 20 30 40 percent less electricity to to keep them heated and cooled uh and now we're talking uh about um, using uh, the, the material for bioplastics to make a biodegradable plant-based plastic to get away from the petroleum base. Uh, these, these, are, these are, I mean, look at the chessboard, look three and four moves ahead. You know, did the, the, the monetary gain and the monetary, cause a lot of this is not so much money gained at the front, it's how much prevention of future problems or current problems are we mitigating now? So say we put off and so we'll say, we'll say years down the road, we get hemp into plastics because it has the highest, you know, amount of cellulose for really any plant material that we have known. And it makes it the best, one of the best resources that we could possibly use to create this plastic out of. Uh, we then we can then st- then start solving the problem of the plastics and work more fully on the cleanup, being that we're not consistently adding to the problem that we're trying to fix, you know, creating a bigger problem.
1: Yeah. So when about volume.
2: like
1: <clears throat> This is another conversation that comes up. You know, when we talk about ability to really compete on a global scale or even within our United States, when we talk about scale, what is a volume needed in acreage or pound or tons to fulfill or to supply to a facility, your size and not just your facility, but a market. Or an industry like the plastics. I mean, what are we looking at for acres and put into perspective?
0: Yeah, I mean, on the grand scheme of things, our, you know, even though our processing facilities are very high capacity, uh, relatively speaking, we're talking very few acres to, to do it. And ultimately, long term, we would like, you know, to, to replicate, find a model that works and replicate that model and have multiple processing facilities um, of you know, this magnitude. Strategically placed throughout the country, but we're looking at, you know, year one is like under 20,000 acres. Oh. And, and, and I mean, you know, we're talking year two, year three, we're getting into 40,000 or, or so acres, hopefully. But uh, that's
1: only, that's for 8,000. How many, how, what did you say your processing time is? Or how uh, you process an hour? We
2: are doing about 10 tons per hour uh, and running at full capacity. Uh, at absolute full capacity, that's about 88,000 tons of material per year. That's about 25, 26, 27,000 acres when the acres are growing at an average of about three tons per acre, which is doable, very doable, and very acceptable. So as the farmers get their hands on this crop, that's they're not growing. That's yeah,
1: not much acreage. I mean, what no, that tells no. me is like, this isn't even putting a dent in exactly. what we're
2: capable of. Yeah. So yeah,
1: I I thought you were going to say hundreds of, uh-huh. thousands of acres, not twenty-seven.
2: Yeah, no, well, that's the goal many years from now. Many years yeah. from now. But right now, yeah. dipping dipping our toe in the water and just getting things started on the crawl phase. You know, 25, 000 acres at full capacity. You know that that that's extremely doable. If we can't if we can't convince farmers to grow that little acres from us, then we we definitely don't know yeah. what we're doing.
1: so now talk to me about contracts, right? Um, What I've seen and learned is so much of our acreage is owned by a very small piece of our population, right? Mm -hmm. Something like the majority of what we eat, 99% of what we eat is owned by 1% of the ownership. Mm -hmm. What does the model look like that you guys have developed to prevent that from happening and provide more opportunity to farms? are you co- partnering with co-ops are you working with different you know, associations to help you know bring smaller farms in or experienced farmers that may add it as a rotation with say a hundred acres versus thousands of acres what are you what, what are you guys doing
2: that's something that we've looked into uh, we've uh, one of the one particular group with uh, Tilbury Sims with the Texas hip Growers oh. Association located out in West Texas where which is the site of one of our facilities uh, she's looking at it. Huh? Interview for Friday. Give her a shout out. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Please watch that interview. That woman knows what she is talking about, man. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, she is talking about getting a, a coalition of farmers together. A lot of farmers are old school, they don't want to do co-op. You know, they're very, I want to, you know, I'm you know, I want to handle my business, you know, and, and that's an adult trait. And you know, there's gonna be some people that function on that. But there are going to be people uh, that need that are going to need that co-op or prefer to do that co-op type plan. And I think we should be more than willing to welcome them into the fold and do everything that we absolutely can to make sure that they are successful as well. Is Um, there
1: a way to give them a piece of that supply chain? What I've, what I see a lot in the co-op model is farmers are bringing product to the co-op to be processed or the facility to be processed and they're paid out on weight. But as soon as it's sent through that first initial processing, it doubles in value. And then it goes to another one and it quadruples in value. Is there a way to give part of that entire supply chain back to the farmer so that we...
0: We, we talked about, uh, we, we explored some options doing that through carbon credits. Oh, okay. Um, you know, and and we're kind of researching what what that model would look like.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, because, you know, uh we could be in a position where we're earning some significant carbon credits that, that we would like to to pay back to to the farmers on in addition to whatever they can earn. Um, but but certainly we are we we are very aware that to to get farmers on board with this because of the risk involved, we're going to have to become we're going to have to get creative on on Incentivization programs and things that we can do for farmers. Yeah. Um, one of the first efforts really is to ensure that we're setting the farmers up for success, and and you know what that means is doing the doing the work as much as we can ourselves on figuring out what grows best in the region that we're going to be asking farmers to grow in, and what are the best practices for for growing and harvesting the crop. Um, I would like to have—it's kind of a, a, a hope, uh, you know—on my on my want list—is some some real expert liaisons who I can, you know, give to the farmer. Just say, hey, this person is at your disposal. They will go to you anytime you need it. They will walk the fields with you. They will identify problems before they become too big and figure out how to fix it. Um, you know, so, so things like that is kind of where we're we're at in this stage of the game—is really just trying to figure out that um uh, those those needs and, and how are
1: managed managers and sops right based on exactly. what product we have that's something that i've talked a lot about especially in the textile space because yeah. it is such a unique harvest or crop or certain seed or genetic compared to a kitty litter
0: mm-hmm. right yeah.
1: um it, it just completely changes and so yeah i agree with you that having access to a solid team or liaison or SOPs, right. That yeah. kind of guarantees if you follow these steps, it secures your contracts.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, and lastly, I would say we, we've, we've had conversations internally, nothing I can really put down yet, black and white, but on how we want to manage, um, you know, potential profit within our organization. And, um, because you know, earlier on in the conversation we're talking about our primary goal here is to make this industry work for all the numerous benefits that we've, we've identified. Um, <clears throat> if we become this big fat cat processor who's just rolling in you know, profits and kind of doing it at the, at the uh, expense of farmers and, and even potential customers, it's not going to set the right tone for, for getting this industry up off the ground. There, there's, there's enough to be had for everybody in this thing, right. I mean, th- th- there's more than enough. We, it's a, it's what we call a blue ocean thing, right? So, um, what we're what we're going to look at doing, I think, the easiest way for us to, to give back to the farmers is to pay well, <laughs> pay well yeah. for what they provide us. Um, and
1: what like, what's what? What are we looking at on a per ton basis, or you know, what is that right now compared to what would be ideal?
2: Sure. Right, uh, well uh with the target price we initially started out at somewhere around about two hundred dollars per ton but with commodity changes and everything is it's something that we we can't guarantee a price right now especially when the facility that we have is not slated to be up in operation until quarter one 2023 things happen between now and between that time and you know if i if i say hey we're going to guarantee you this price then that backs us in the corner. Like I want to be able to pay them farmer absolutely as much as I can. Uh, Some of the things that we've uh, kicked around are uh, one of the things that we would love to do talking with some of the farmers is mitigate some of the risk. I can't guarantee that these are things that we are going to do, but some of the things that we are extensively looking at doing is doing seed provision for the farmer. Uh one of the things that I'm most excited about doing is is because we're kind of work against what CBD market did with the farmer. We have we're really working against that. One of the analogies that I use is, you know, farmers are basically just got out of an abusive relationship and just you know, just some schmuck showing up with flowers ain't, ain't gonna do it. So uh, we got one of the things that I would like to have to do is whenever the farmer comes to the table with us, we sit down, we're making an agreement. Hey, this is the price that I'll give you. Or you think this is a fair price. Once everybody's happy with that, and we have that agreed upon price. I take that money that we have in the operations budget, set it aside, put it in escrow that can only be touched. That is, it's already there. It's already there just waiting for that farmer to show up with the crop. So when he grows it and he comes in, it's a simple capitalist transaction. You give me stuff, I give you money. Then that's it.
1: And they uh, know it's there.
2: Yes. And, and they, they know, know it's
1: there. Funds are locked up for uh-huh. them. They follow the rules. If they do what they're supposed to and they deliver product, it's not a, I mean, I heard a horror story yesterday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 36 shipping containers that went to ship off and the contract canceled.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Like, it likes, okay, so I agreed to pay you this much money for yeah. it. And while I was waiting for you to show up with a product, I took that money and maybe invested it in like Bitcoin or something. And then it went down like 20%. I can't pay you or whatever you decided to do with that money. I love cryptocurrency, but that's not what you're supposed to do with business. (laughs) (laughs) So have that money set aside. It's right here. It's waiting for you. You show up with the product. Give me the product. Mm -hmm. We give you 80, 85% of it right out of the gate. We process it. And then the additional... Weight of the material that's left behind, is what we give to you after we soil, after we fit, after we get, you know, moisture levels accounted for, after we get soil knocked out of it, after we get the rocks knocked out of it, and the metal, because we're we're buying the plant, we're not buying we're not buying dirt, we're not buying water, we're not buying rocks. I think anybody can find that that's a very reasonable agreement. So, but and then the rest of that money that's allotted to you from that escrow account goes to you. If you hit 100% of that mark, bam, you get all of that money. That, that, that is all of it you've met the agreement you know we are in good standing with you you're in good standing with me let's keep doing business with each other yeah, uh, yeah. And, also, and also some other things that we need to consider is what exactly the market is being grown for uh, the the material that's coming to me is it for textiles because if it's for textiles you got to grow it differently you may have to harvest it at a you know 45 60 day mark before you know while that fiber is still young and while it's still more supple and soft So with that, your plant's not going to get as tall. And with that, your tonnage is not going to be as high, which means you're not getting as much money for that. So offset being that you're bringing me a higher quality product, that means that I have to give you a higher price for that higher quality product to offset that weight that you're not getting out there. You know, things, things like that.
1: But understanding that our farmers still have to meet a specification, right? That yes, there is that grading or standards, you as the processor or the buyer need to understand, or I guess work closely with that farmer, right? On quality. You don't want to buy, and I see this all the time, people are buying say fiber per pound and they end up using eight to 10% of it because yeah. the rest is garbage. It's
2: just unusable. Yeah. Um, and, and that's one of the things that needs to be set up in the agreements. Like, okay, it's one thing for you know me to say, hey, this is what I need. And the farmer that does not have any idea how to grow it says, Yeah, I can do that. And then they grow substandard material and then I don't accept and then I don't accept it because it doesn't meet the standard of the contract. Well, now we have an issue because you know, right. I had this farmer grow out and grow all this product, and now I'm re-nigged on my contract. It's like, no, that's not. I've asked for this, that's and you were to grow. The we solve that by helping the farmer. We yeah. solve that as like, hey man, here's what you need. You, we, we're you know, we work with other industries, you know, like such as uh, the plug supply and all of them to help get you the knowledge that you need. You know, this is what the soil needs. You know, this is what the plant needs. Don't put too much water on it. You're, you, it likes water, but it doesn't like to be wet. It's really finicky like that. Mm-hmm. Something it, It's kind of picky a little bit,
0: <laughs> but, which is,
2: well, but which is why it does really well in the same soil that cotton does, because cotton is the exact same way. So it it likes that kind of that sandy, sandy loam soil, you know, so where where it gets good water on it, but it also drains very well. So, you know, just, you know, saying, just accepting an agreement from a farmer saying that, Hey, I need this. Now, you know, here's a tin of crackers. Now go get, you know, that's not going to be enough. You know, you, you, if I was to, if I was to buy anything from anyone, I would want to know that they have the ability to supply what I'm asking for. So and I have no problem with with coming up with what I need to to get to them to make sure that they have the resources to give that. I mean, this, this is a this is a military thing that we all that everybody in the military understands, particularly combat arms. You know, if you want the mission to work, sometimes you gotta go out of your way to to make sure that this person's trained up or that this person knows what they're doing to establish SOPs to work out the plan.
1: Well, in reality, it is
2: the input five, of- output. Input. Five, of- yeah. Five percent of combat is combat. 90-95% of it is planning and preparation. And that's the stuff that you do not see in movies, is all of the ridiculous. And like not ridiculous, but it does get kind of ridiculous sometimes. But uh, all of the planning and everything that you have to do is like, hey, me and these four guys are going to go in this door. And if anything happens, this is the backup plan. If this guy takes a bullet in the face, then, you know, then this guy steps. There is a contingency upon contingency upon contingency. And there's everybody trains for everything. We're not there yet. We're not there yet with the heaven. We have to get there. We need to get there.
1: Yeah. I really... I really liked your analogy right now because I use the same sort of analogy when I talk about uh, large scale production, right? We, in order for any of these big brands or companies or well-known distribution channels to come on, they have to have a contingency plan and another, right? And they need to know that when your facility goes down because our supply chain is broken and you can't get a part that who's picking up up that volume and where is it coming from? And so I think that that's even more critical when we talk about you know, this big scale compared to small scale is you mm-hmm. have to be able to defer volume as well as production, right? And, and, that's, and that's
2: one of those things where it actually is a good uh, answer to that question is like, how, what do we go big scale on and what do we go small scale on? If we're going to be providing material to these cars to make them more durable and lightweight and increase their gas mileage or increase their electric, you know, their electric mileage, then you're going to need a very consistent material provided to an entire industry. And that's large scale. You can't have 10, 20, you know, hundred, 200 people supplying different material to this industry. And you're going to have this car that can run through a brick wall and this car that bursts in the flames whenever <laughs> you, whenever you turn it on. But that's when large scale makes sense to small scale. And then for the things that you want locally sourced, like things like their building materials, that's going to make that's going to make so much sense for small scale, small radius. You know, that's that's the housing. Yeah, yeah, it's simple to grow. You're going to have something locally farmed simply processed and then that material very lightweight shipped very short distances to build a house that will keep costs down of that house absolutely that there are markets for everything and there, there, are, there are small scale markets there are large scale markets so that's I, really what, like I mean whenever whenever you want honey you want locally sourced honey because you're going to have the benefits of that honey you don't want you know corn syrup from china you may want it but it means you're not getting everything that you could be getting out of it, you know
1: you just cut the benefits you lose some <laughs> You know, when we talk global supply chain, even though we're the global hemp association, I really question our ability to maintain global supply um, after the pandemic and mainly because, again, what happens if you, you know, say have a hammer mill and you can't get a a pin or a, a hammer from another country and now your entire facility is down um mm-hmm. i think equally us being able to feed um and provide revenue sources especially for our small communities because yep. really all they're doing is they're raising their children to leave and then who yep. takes over their farms right That's and
0: well yeah, we've uh, seen a lot of vulnerabilities uh, sorry brian but no, go ahead. Put no on that go ahead real quick we just We've seen a lot of vulnerabilities in different industries. I mean, COVID has highlighted a ton of that, many that you're talking about. Um, But I'm also thinking of the, uh, you know, the incident they had in the Suez Canal recently that that just blocked everybody from getting supplies and like shut down like a quarter of the global economy or whatever it (laughs) did for a certain amount of time. Uh, So I think in general people across the world are looking at, you know, how do we do things a little more regionally or locally so that those vulnerabilities aren't magnified uh, across a global scale and we can, and we can do things a little bit better. Um, And, and kind of along those lines, you know, when we're talking about this nationally, um, Brian and I have had a lot of strategic conversations on the benefits of being kind of a first mover, right? The first mover advantages and all these sorts of things. And what's, What's odd about this is because it's such a new industry, those benefits are kind of turned upside down on their head in some ways. I, 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 for, for what we're trying to do here, I don't know that we want to be the only hemp processor uh, in the country. Uh, you know, we need to, I, I heard actually somebody use the term, and I can't remember who it was to give them credit, but it was on one of your calls. Uh, coopetition was the term, and I love it. I'm going to take it. Um, we need, yeah, we need to have a certain level of competition between processors, large, small, large, medium, and small, to, to because the most important thing right out of the gate is stabilizing the supply chain. Until we until we get the supply chain stabilized, big players who are, who, who are in bioplastics, uh, at large players who are in. Um, or who are just in plastics looking to switch to bioplastics, large players who are in textiles, you know, you're talking your Levi's and, and, your, and your, you know, your big companies that like to produce lots of fabrics and things. They're not gonna look at us, they're not gonna take us seriously until we can show consistent, Brian hit that word on the head, consistent quality and stable supply chain operations. Um, and the only way in my vision that that's gonna work at least in the next four or five years, is if we all kind of work together uh, to make this thing to make this thing work, and and we will because on the other side of that is plenty of of uh, uh, of the pie for everybody.
1: And I think reality is it's I mean it's kind of been shown, and some of the gentlemen that we've spoken about earlier today put into perspective to, for me when they told me how many processing facilities of this same size we would need to fulfill kitty litter within the industry, and it's something oh like gosh. 100 facilities, yeah. right? And knowing that your facility is not going to create the exact same specifications as someone else's processing facility. And until we know what the standards are on the end for those 25,000 products, like you said, we have to have variety and you have to be able to shift and say, hey, this product doesn't work for me, but this one does. And this one over here actually works better for this industry. You know, like you said, textiles, plastics, biofuels, um, and then food and grain. You know, we're talking about an entire new market that just isn't hardly even discussed very much. Um, that Yeah, I'm with you. And I really respect where you guys are in this focus on building the supply chain and building the industry, not at being the one and only, right? I mean, we talk big scale. I think that's what scares the small scale is they're going to come in and take over and you guys just don't have that mindset at all i mean it really is there's benefits to being first and to say it's yeah. not about money at all would be foolish i mean none of us are
2: working for free it, However, Ber- Ber- you know burger king exists you know McDonald's exists. <laughs> and you know mama's country kitchen also exists and feeds that community as well like all like all of these it, all of these ecosystems coexist they're large and small everything this is this yeah. Exists on every scale, uh, everything down to you know nuclear power generation providing for large scale, and then decentralized solar supplementation and wind supplementation for you know smaller scale individual homes. The, the, this the same principle can be applied to many different areas, and it applies here as well. So, and then with the the ability for the revitalization that this has, uh, kind of going back to the trade, like trade good dependence bad. So we have, we're in a position here where we could do a major revamping of infrastructure and manufacturing in the United States to where these places that have been, you know, the textile mills that have been show, that shut down and these paper mills that have been shut down. Well, wow, we have an extremely versatile crop that works in both of these industries that can, that can come in and revitalize these small towns but well, you could have Texas grown Texas processed and Texas made paper distributed nationally by Amazon, you know, let do let local and let local manufacturing and let local growers and let local businesses do what they do best and let the big businesses do what they do best. And a, big, a big business could be a major turnaround for a small business.
1: Well, and I think that big businesses will always figure it out if we take care of small business. Right. Yes. And I- for a long time to grow this we have to have big businesses come on board so that we can build processing facilities so that we can build distribution channels and supply chains but the carbon footprint that was put around the big business processing i mean i was mind blown when i found out you know it's grown in the u.s and shipped to china and then shipped to europe and then back to china mm-hmm. and then back to the u.s
2: like mm-hmm. why, be why why are right? we? So, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, So this is that opportunity. We have that opportunity to fix that piece of it. that still allows us to scale big scale, but eliminate this carbon footprint that we've created by, you know, outsourcing so much of our manufacturing and processing. And okay, I have two more questions before we end because we're already over our time. But I want to know how far what's your time frame you think before we're mainstream or in the majority of products, you know, before we really are. I don't know.
0: I have a 10 year outlook. Okay. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, and that's an ambitious outlook, I think yeah. <laughs> I, 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 but, but I, I think we're going to see in, in five years, an explosion, mm-hmm. um, and in 10 and 15 years, you're going to see, um, you know, much more wide scale adoption across all industries. Mm-hmm. Um, I see this disruptor, I see this as a disruptor, you know, not quite as large as like the internet or Bitcoin. But I mean, look at Bitcoin, you know, was that 2007? Sorry to get crypto nerdy on you here, but uh, you know- know.
1: It boggles my mind. Like I can't tell you, I I didn't jump in and I had an opportunity. Somebody said, hey, I'll pay you in Bitcoin. This was like uh, so many years ago. And I was like, are you high? (laughs) Nobody. why would you ever do that? Well, I'd be a million.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, actually,
2: actually think I offered to be a member of your association and I asked you if you paid it to pay yeah,
0: me. Yeah, <laughs> You should thinking it, man.
1: <laughs> well, and after you told me your story, Brian, I was like, I really am an idiot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but one thing that, that this has going for it that, that Bitcoin doesn't is it's much easier to understand. <laughs> and yeah. and um, you can touch it. it, it mm-hmm. Honestly, it's already been proven, right? Like for, for hundreds of years in, in history, uh, if not thousands, um, it was such a widely used commodity for for all sorts of things. Um, it's kind of it's kind of ridiculous that it went away. And if you look at the eighty years or so that it's um, you know not been allowed in this country, at least to be used, on the grand scheme of things, that 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 timescale that's a that's a blip. I mean, that was just a little blip of of hemp's long history that just kind of dipped there. Um, and I mean, you're, you're now you're going to be re-int- reintroducing a proven uh, resource into a thriving market that is that we haven't seen, you know, uh, in the first thousand years of its existence. It's going to explode. It, it, people are going to jump on it, and they're going to go, "Holy cow! I didn't even know this stuff was real and existed, and why didn't we use it?" And, I
1: yeah. believe this is bigger than the dot com and Bitcoin boom. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I hope you're right <laughs> I really, because the dot-com boom, or I compare pretty com- like competitively that those are vehicles to drive business. I feel like mm-hmm. hemp is the same hemp is a, it's a vehicle, not an industry in itself. And it's something that's going to be in every single one of these industries.
0: Let, me, know? let me give Never. you one. Sorry. Right. You're okay. Go. go ahead. Uh, one statistic that, that lends to what you're saying and, and kind of that 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 uh, optimistic outlook. It, I, I just saw this. It was like one if we, percent. If we got one percent of the U.S. farmland to be used to grow hemp, it would absolutely replace wood and pulp deforestation. Just one percent, which is like which is like twenty million or so acres, give or take a few. Um, so so I mean, you can imagine. That's 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 a huge disruption to you know lumber, right? That's lumber's going at that point. Lumber's going. Oh gosh, what do we do? Uh, we got to fight it, or we got to get on board. But but I mean, that's such a small percentage of of farmland, and 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 there there is a, a huge uh, uh, problem that you've just solved right there is deforestation with erosion, uh, you know, uh, pollution, and all these sorts of things that go on with that you've just switched it over to farms and now you're growing uh everything you need for for uh pulp, pulp and wood and yeah. 1% 1% of the of the land yeah and um,
2: and hitting and hitting on what you just said with like get on board or you know not and that's another thing that everybody's so worried that you know, cotton industry and, and the fossil fuel industry is going to absolutely bring the, you know, the sword of Damocles is and overhead. And we're just waiting for, you know, that weapon to fall and basically start, you know, decimating this infrastructure and this industry before it gets off the ground. It's, well, you got to think of it in several, in, in a different way, too, is uh, there are going to be some companies that get on board with this and run with it. I mean, the, the idea of a market disruption doesn't automatically mean they're, that it's only resistance, you know, sometimes it's acceptance, you know, digital cameras came into the space and Sony embraced it and Kodak did not, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, look at those companies now. I mean, we can all, you know, it, that it, it was the same product that came into the same space. It was an absolute disruptor and it did hit, it did hit resistance, but the market made the decision about what it wanted and then who, and then the, the company that went, what with the mark, what made sense to the market is the one that benefited the most. So it doesn't matter if there is resistance; the the market drive will smash through it. It may take longer sometimes, but it will smash through it. That yeah. resistance, the resistance does not stand.
1: I think that you got. You said earlier, Kyle, that you know we see we have a market now that we've never seen. One, our housing market is horrible. Utah's alone is. Horrific. Yeah. I think we're 30, 35,000 homes short right now in our valley. We're landlocked. We don't have anywhere to build. Our air quality is horrible out here.
0: Yeah. And look at the prices of lumber because,
1: yeah. Well, and our average house starts at $500,000 here. Yeah. In the dream of home ownership, is going out the window when that's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then yeah. you said something else I was going to bring up, Brian. <laughs> We were talking about, remind me what you just what you were talking about.
2: Uh, market resistance versus. Oh, you know.
1: that, okay. And this is the first time that we're seeing a consumer driven market. You yeah. know, consumers care about sustainability. They care about what's happening on production side. They want to know it's ethically sourced and ethically made.
2: Yeah. You know, well, that, that's the thing is not only is this a better product, it's both. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's the benefit of being both. That's what makes this so killer is it's not so much everybody, you know, the, the, if you want to put a, a political idea behind it, it's the fact that, you know, a capitalist is an industrialist, and an industrialist is destroying the world where you have the ability for this material to be environmental or, you know, environmental capitalism. Mm-hmm. You could, you could take that, you know, if you want to call it a source for evil, you know, and turn its strengths—you know—that its weaknesses now into a serious strength. It's it's an all plus. It's a win-win
0: here. Yeah, and all we have to do is just identify what what makes you tick, right? As a consumer, like what do you care yeah. about? Do you, are you looking to save money? Uh, do you want to save the environment? Uh, are you looking for a healthier home, or 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 you know what is it? You know, as soon as a, as a sales guy, I can figure that out. Ah, I, here's all the boxes i check in that category oh by the way if you care a little bit about this stuff it helps here too I, you don't see that i mean you never see that right like if something it, tastes good and it's it's really bad for you or it kind of tastes crappy and it's really good for you well and i think <laughs>
1: for the first time sorry brian <laughs> go
0: ahead go ahead <laughs> for the
2: first
1: time we're also sustainable and profitable right yeah. up until now somebody said sustainable and every investor turned their head because it's yeah. it's not it's I'm not typically yeah you're gonna lose <laughs> money or there's no opportunity and so i think this again is there's so many firsts and so many reasons as to why we should versus why we shouldn't be so where um, Last question, and then we'll sign off because we're way over. But I'm curious, where where are you guys headed next? What's the next step, and how can we, as an association or anybody that's listening, really help?
0: That's kind of I think the, the initial challenge for us right out of the gate is the the research needed to um, really figure out how to grow the crop well. Um, I, I you know obviously we don't want to be in a situation where we have this awesome shiny facility. We cut the ribbon, we're sitting there and then we go, nobody can Nobody can do what we need to, to supply this thing. So um, we, ha- we have a lot of good things going on right now on that front, working with people that we need to work with um, to set those farmers up for success because their success is our success. So, so that's the initial, I think, really big challenge right now that we're looking at in terms of the macro view of the industry is just like, um, you know, if we're going to be, a large-scale processor, um, is is the supply going to be able to, to, to meet that demand? Um, and, and it's on us to figure that out and, and provide that knowledge, information, and, and everything we can to the farmers so that we set them up for success.
1: Okay, so there is a group of um, leaders in the industry getting together, 50 to 100 of them quarterly. I'd like to invite you guys. Yeah, um, it's a pretty executive level. It's invite only, but it's to discuss this exactly. No more <laughs> holding what we have to our chest. We're going to bring to the table genetics, seeds, data, research, our connections, and then we're going to continue to grow it and really sort out who's who. They've yeah. come to us uh, because my focus has been so much more on the business sector and the processing sector to figure out, Who's who in this industry? Um, and then just kind of bring them together. But I'd love to have you guys at the table sure. because I think it's yeah, you're sitting in a place much different than they are. They're up Midwest, most of them. Um, you know, and I I am curious about mm-hmm. where in the, you know, region different processing facilities are gonna fulfill different industries, right? Plastics versus yeah.
2: olive and blah blah blah. Yeah. Well, yeah, all that would depend on strain and everything. I mean you're totally. going have- of a thing where probably some of the be- you know it may be very well the case that the best the best textile grade material is grown by a strain that can only be grown in Kentucky and then you have you know you have you know a, a certain Kentucky problem from Kentucky originally you can have a, a certain you know pride in that area that you know we produce the you know the best stuff that there is on the planet for this particular purpose and then you know, Nebraska's over here is, is absolutely killing it with the material that they make for bioplastics. and, and yeah.
1: you know, yeah. So I'd like to bring this together. I'd like to bring this because I think just like you said, Kyle, is it's on us to figure this out. And yeah. well, instead of you doing it by yourself, let's get together with people that have done each piece and start putting those puzzle pieces together so we have better landscape. Um, but yeah, I'm with you. I'd love to support you. So if someone wants to reach out, get in touch with you, how do they... How do they get in touch?
0: Uh, So they can reach me directly um, at kyle.huttenwalker at eli.inc. And I can spell the last name, actually. It's probably good that I do that, right? Well,
1: I'll go ahead and share it for you. Okay. Uh, Inscribe it and put it in the notes. So anybody that's listening that didn't get that, it will be in the notes. And then we'll just make it a clickable link for you.
2: Yeah, perfect. That's it. And Then mine in turn is brian, B R Y A N dot wilson at eli inc, also as well. And we're currently working on our website right now. Um, also, there is an environmental living industries LinkedIn page, uh, which is linked to mine. Uh, I believe Kyle's attached on there too. So that's another way of getting a hold of us as well. Um, and know yep. once that website's up, you'll have a third. I
1: love it. Well, perfect. But well, thank you guys. I sure appreciate your time. Thank you very, very, very much. And Absolutely. No, it's a lot of fun. As this progresses and whenever you want, I say this very seriously, whenever you want, I'm happy to bring you guys on to do QA, to help highlight, to do more, you know, podcasts. Um, if there's certain targets you guys are prospecting or or companies, I'm help happy to help strategically create an opportunity for you. Um so just keep that in mind as things come up. I'd love Thank to you, see you not any yeah. cost, but just yeah, I believe in what you're doing and I want good people to rise to the top. And so mm-hmm. I will throw your name in the mix for the um there's two actually there's a hemp partners coalition that started. Instead of people merging their associations, they're just building new ones. Which <laughs> is I, right. I just even mine, I'm not, and I've said this for a long time, I am not the end all be all. If somebody else came in and said, hey, I think we should merge and your name doesn't work. I don't care as long as our mission is right. And I don't have to be the end all be all, but it's interesting to me how other organizations are and they're unwilling to merge or collaborate, but this Hemp Partners Coalition, they're trying to make farm-aid uh, hemp be the number one topic for farm-aid this year, oh, which wow. So I'd love to have you involved in that one. And then the other one is the like, head cheese. I don't know what to call it yet. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a name, but. <laughs> I like the cheese. <laughs> yeah, a bunch <laughs> of people getting together to, yeah. I because I think we're going to run into a lot of dominant personalities.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's always fun.
1: But well, I'm happy to happy to
0: get involved in anything. Just let us know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm honored for the invite like, too. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well thank you guys.
0: Thank you, man. Talk soon. See you next time.